and I'm basically getting a lot of information about how to live from a specific set of dudes. And I realized like there are this class of dudes, usually Gen X. So we're talking like mid 40s into 50s dudes who are telling me millennials uh, and Gen Z how to live. But Huberman is probably like king of the protocol daddies. And he literally, he uses the word protocol. He says, here are yes. the protocols to live by. And, and they work and they're great. I don't think presidents have as much power as some of these protocol daddies do when it comes to actually saying, here's a lifestyle, here's an identity, go forth and try it out. And people are doing it and it's changing their lives. This is a great conversation I had with Johnny Bowman. He was previously the CEO of Upward Farms. And he co-leads the Brooklyn chapter of All Kings, which is a men's group for formerly incarcerated men. I first heard about him through a Google document that he created, and it was centered around physical health. The 80-20 of how to get into peak physical shape, but centered around the concept of longevity. I found this document super helpful. I was going through a lot of that research myself, and it had you know, very practical steps of how to reduce a lot of the risks. So I reached out to him to see if he wanted to come onto the podcast to talk about everything related to physical health. But on that initial call, I realized he was way more passionate about manhood, men's groups, emotional intelligence, mental health, and all these topics that I would say sit hand in hand with physical health. So I invited him. We talked about all those topics. We talk about everything from the right fiber intake per day to different role models for men, how shame affects a lot of young men in today's society, the role of men's groups. And... We covered a lot of topics. We went down a lot of rabbit holes. I really enjoyed the conversation and I hope you do too. So here's the episode. I'm happy to have Johnny Bowman. And I, I guess I first met you or I first heard about you from that physical health doc that you wrote. And I remember I was talking to Justin Mayers about all the, all these health tests that I was taking and getting his advice. He's like, dude, you got to read this document. Forward it along to me. I was like, dude, this is great. This is like the cliff notes for everything I'm supposed to do with my health. So I think that's how we originally got introduced, but uh, kind of curious, like what motivated you to, to create that? And has that document gone viral? Like have a lot of people hit you up that have read it and I, I'm just kind of curious. I, I, so no, no, it hasn't gone viral. I, uh, I, I think you are the only one who's seen it outside of like friends and family basically. Uh, and then, and then you've sent it out and so now it's getting some, some, some traffic, but, um, but no, I made that for myself about a, you know, a little over a year ago. And basically I had left my job, had all this time on my hands and was just mainlining Huberman, Peter Atia, uh, and, and Lane Norton just night and day for a while. And, and my goal was to improve my own health. It had never really been a focus. My father had passed away and that got me really self-conscious about my own heart health. And I realized I, I knew nothing that the doctors who had told me I was doing fine, just had a very low standard for what health looked like. And, you know, 300 hours of Huberman lab later, uh, I was like, this is too much information to just keep in my head. Uh, and so let's make a, a nifty Google doc out of it. And so that's all it is. It's just a summary of, of all those things. I, I found it super helpful. I remember you writing about like, if you score high here, focus on lowering your APOB and do these things. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to focus on doing those things. Like, okay, exercise, eating healthy. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of hilarious how many scans there are, how poor your health might be, how many different ways to find out that I'm not, you know, doing yeah. great. And then how few the answers really are for just making sure that you're in A plus health. 
it's uh yeah i mean you can distill it in like four or five simple steps yeah, what, are, what, are, what are those four or five things so it's so one is get get sleep seven to eight hours two uh exercise at least five i think they they mostly go for six days a week uh split between cardio and strength training um three is make sure that you are eating enough fiber and protein i think the the, the stated goal for fiber is like 35 to 50 grams uh, a day, which is a lot. And a lot. like way more than most of us are doing for sure. Uh, and then a gram of protein per pound of body weight, which is also like an inhuman amount of protein to Super eat. Super hard. Yeah. Super unless you're mainlining whey protein, it's not easy to do. Uh, and so, um, oh, and then like whatever alcohol you're drinking, drink less. Uh, yeah. That also was like a, a big one for me where I was like, okay, this is, you know, um, I'm maybe trying, I should cut this out by like a two thirds at least uh, yeah. because it's more than seven drinks a week uh, or two drinks a week, depending on who you talk to. Uh, yeah, it does long-term damage because it's poison. And so um, those are, you know, sleeping, eating, exercise are the main things. And no matter when you're talking about your, you know, your brain, your heart, your ability to be a capable person, generally speaking, you know, when you're 80 years old, it comes down to those things. It's always the simple things that take a lot of work is usually the answer. And most people want the shortcuts. Uh, yeah, there's definitely a complex version of doing this. But at, at its base, it's staying consistent with those things. The thing that stood out to me was fiber. So never because I, I, I heard about protein. So yeah, we do 0.7 to 1 per pound has you know benefits for muscle and longevity but the fiber thing was pretty interesting to me because i went to costa rica this summer and costa rica i think has the best fruit i mean there's just fruit everywhere and i definitely feel like i hit 50 grams a day i mean i wasn't counting it but i i left that trip thinking i was like eating horribly because i was just eating whatever i wanted and i just remember just like literally pooping all the time and when I got home, I weighed myself. I was like, I definitely gained weight on this trip. Mm -hmm. And I came back. I was like, oh, I lost a lot of weight. It's so weird. But yeah. And I started thinking, I was like, what did I eat? And I was like, oh my gosh, I must have eaten like half of my meals every day was fruit. And I'm so surprised it's not the biggest deal when it comes to nutrition. Like we, there's a lot, all these diets, obviously, that, that get popularized. And, and we've certainly learned a lot. But, um, but there's this one study that i that I, I found out about listening to uh dr lane norton about nutrition which was for every 10 grams of fiber additionally that you eat a day you have a 10 percent lower risk of dying just full stop which is like that's the magic bullet we there are no magic bullets except for kind of that one when it <laughs> comes to you know what we eat and its impact on on death and so uh, the fact that we are getting maybe half, probably less of the amount of fiber we should be eating a day because of because uh, so much of food is processed, which takes yeah. all, you know, all the fiber out. Um, it's it's to me, that was that's probably the biggest change I've done. And when I immediately, you know, rectified my diet to eat that amount of fiber, it, you know, I, I was it was a weird poop situation for like a week because <laughs> my body was not used to that you got to go slow and steady on that front all right so 
I'm not going to ask follow-up questions about that. Um, I don't think the listeners are what I listen to. But how do you hit 50 grams of fiber a day? That's a lot. That's a lot. I mean, here's how I do it. It's you know everyone should should figure it out for themselves. Yeah. But um, but one like I I love bread, and uh, I'm, I can never Same. take it out of my diet. But most bread is really poor in fiber, despite it being yeah. you know grains. And and so finding a source of bread that is high in fiber was a big one for me. There's a specific type of German bread. I think the brand is called Menstermacher. Um, it's like really flat and dense and it's got nine grams per slice. And it's like, you know, it's an incredible source of fiber. So, so eat that. Um, avocados, weirdly great for, for fiber. Um, try to eat one of those a day. Uh, and then, you know, leafy greens and vegetables, what, what most people do. It's, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, whole foods generally will get you, I think, two thirds of the way there. And, and then I do supplement. So uh, I do add five, like at least 10 grams once, maybe twice a day uh, to, to a smoothie. Yeah. And yeah, that's, that's one way to do it. Yeah. No fruit. Uh, you know, I eat a banana a day. I don't know yeah, if that's yeah. even got anything fiber wise, but I'm, uh, I'm not a huge fruit person to got be it. honest. Yeah. Yeah. I did something similar to you where for me, it's not bread, it's rice. Mm, yeah. I also grew up eating rice. And I, I just convinced myself that because I'm Asian and I grew up eating white rice, that it doesn't affect me as like it would another person, which is definitely not true. <laughs> but I found that like this other rice packet that you could just kind of throw in with your white rice that just adds a bunch of fiber to it. My wife actually found it and we'll throw it in there. It turns the rice purple, but it still tastes the same. But oh, interesting. Adds, adds a bunch of fiber too. So what's just, it called? I'll send it to you. I can't remember, but uh, it's like one and a half scoops of white rice and half a scoop of that. And you know, the rice comes out purple. So our daughter thinks it's cool because it's purple rice. Yeah. But like, uh, yeah, because I was like, I'm always going to eat rice. Um, that's just going to be a staple. Yeah. And I do think ancestral diets are really important. Like for me, that was a really big uh, portal into eating healthier and doing it in a way yeah. that tasted good for me. I do think, you know, it's it's tough to be super prescriptive just because people have so many different tastes. But yeah. uh, but people ate a lot of fiber 300 years ago. Yeah. Like every, like, you know, we weren't processing stuff. And, no. you know, it definitely came from somewhere. And so I think if we do stick with our what our, you know, grandparents yeah. uh, were raised on, there's a good chance that that's going to be vastly superior to, yeah. to modern diets. What was interesting when I first reached out to you is that I thought we would talk about physical health, the whole podcast. And then when we chatted, you kind of started mentioning what you do and what you're interested in, which is men's work or manhood or more of emotional intelligence or the mental health aspects of that, obviously paired with the physical health. And you mentioned this concept around a protocol daddy. What is that? What's your definition? And what led you to coin that term? Yeah. So, so it did start out with me for physical health. And I'm, yeah. you know, looking at these podcasts and I'm on, I'm on YouTube and, and Spotify and whatnot. And I'm basically getting a lot of information about how to live from a specific set of dudes. And I realized like there are this class of dudes, usually uh, Gen X. So we're talking like mid 40s, 
in the 50s, dudes who are telling me, millennials uh, and Gen Z, how to live. Huberman is probably like king of the protocol daddies. And he's got, I mean, he literally, he uses the word protocol. He says, here are yes. the protocols to live by. And, and they work and they're great. And so he's, a, he's I think, the most popular of, of this crew of people. But, um, but, I mean, Tim Ferriss has, you know, the things that he's into and the protocols that, that he is, you know, evangelizes. You've got um, uh, Joe Rogan. You've got Charlemagne the God, who's, you know, doing a lot on the mental health front. And so uh, it's, they're all kind of in a similar age. They're all, you know, giving very helpful information. And it is, uh, it's a very new phenomenon because it's so, it's useful information paired with uh, a very intimate knowledge of who this person is. I mean, I'm spending hours a week thinking about this guy and yeah. I'm like absorbing whatever information he gives me. And I'm Dude. understanding over time his preferences and his lifestyle. And, and it's a whole identity that I'm absorbing. And so I think it's a, I just think it's a huge deal. I don't think presidents have as much power as some of these protocol daddies do when it comes to actually saying, here's a lifestyle, here's an identity, go forth and try it out. And people are, are doing it and it's changing their lives. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I know when I would click on some of those on YouTube and I didn't really like what the person was saying, I would always have to make sure that I never clicked on another video from that person because I didn't want my feed to get infiltrated. Yeah, but I mean, because it works both ways. Yeah, it's it's it good and bad yeah. protocols. Yeah, well, uh, we could talk about those. I know Brian Johnson, and then there's Brian Johnson, right? So, <laughs> so what are your thoughts on those protocol daddies? It's funny yeah. that they're that they have the same name. Yeah, uh, but yeah, so we've got Brian Johnson who's trying to become immortal, and um, you know, made a lot of money uh, selling selling but, in tech. I think he sold Braintree yeah. to PayPal for a lot. I don't, I don't even remember what the amount was, but right. I mean, the guy is, probably has like hundreds of millions of dollars in his bank account. Exactly. Yeah. Would, and spends, yeah. you know, two to three million a, a year, you know, making himself an 18 year old. And the, the funny thing about that is he read an article about LeBron spending that much money on his body every year. So he read that and he's like, huh. Then he started thinking, he was like, well, if I had to spend $2 million for my body every year, what would that look like? And I guess he landed on lowering his biological age to that of an 18-year-old and running every single test to get there. I didn't know that origin yeah. story. That's, uh, yeah. that's interesting. Uh, yeah, out-competing LeBron on, uh, on, on spending money and investing in oneself. Yeah. Uh, so I think like, a part of me is all about what he's doing because I think it's a very... You know, it's scary to put yourself out there and, and, you know, really publicly say, here are my borrow markers. Here's what I'm doing. Here's what's working and not working. And this can further science because the frontier of, of, of longevity is a lot of anecdotal evidence. You do have to trial and error yourself into what works for, your, for oneself, you know, once you really start getting into that bleeding edge. And so, so that's really cool. At the same time, it's a lot of naked photo shoots. Like there, this is not purely about the science. And uh, I just think that there's something else going on there that is not, yeah. that's not just being young, but being really young, 18 years old. And, um, and 
And just the fact that like I see him shirtless more than anyone else on the internet uh, and his wardrobe went from like dorky Silicon Valley guy to like this oatmeal futurism, uh, you know, the matrix, but you know, natural colors type of thing. And there's something else going on. Yeah. I just, I don't know what I it mean, is. I don't, I don't necessarily like it though. And so uh, I, I want to learn, but I don't want to be sucked into that universe. I think what he's doing is pretty cool. If you spend that much money on yourself to further research for longevity can only be a good thing. But I find what he's doing so extreme. Like if he had a protocol, I, I know there are people that follow, follow it, but for me, there's no way I'm doing any of this stuff. It's, it's just too intense. Yeah. But I guess a good juxtaposition to him would be the other Brian Johnson, who is also shirtless and always in my feet. There's a, there's a point, I guess, when he was at his peak that he was like all over the internet, like his, his physique. Oh, Liver King crushed it. Yeah. yeah. He did. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on Liver King? I, you know what? I honestly think. Liver King might be a health like more. I like I like him more than the other Brian Johnson. Oh really? Yeah. I looked at both. I was like, oh, is there a good one and a bad one? Is there a good protocol that or a bad one? And obviously, he got busted for taking steroids to get his physique. But yeah, kind of curious. Like, why do you why do you like the Liver King a lot more than the other Brian Johnson? So Liver the Liver King's faults are so obvious. Like he lied about taking steroids True. again and again and again, and then he finally got busted, caught red handed. And and so, you know, the cat's out of the bag on that one. Um, his content is way over the top. It's him, you know, you know, like dragging, dragging hundreds of pounds of weights, like in the middle of New York City. And uh, he wears like a Viking hat. And it's so ridiculous that I, there's no part of me that at all wants to copy what he does. And um, and like he, he involves his like family in a lot of photo shoots. And they're just like. They don't, they're not coming with the same gusto energy that he is. And sometimes that can be awkward too, which I find hilarious. Yeah. But he's got these nine ancestral tenants of how to live. And it's stuff like, uh, um, you know, like prioritize family and connection, prioritize, uh, you know, eating right and, and grounding and sunlight. And these are the exact same things that, you know, Hooverman is speaking about from a scientific angle. And so... I, you know, I don't think anyone should copy him. I don't think he's, uh, you know, he's been an honest person. And, uh, and if he, if the cat was not out of the bag on the steroids front, I wouldn't say his name out loud because I wouldn't want to popularize him. But because that's happened, I think, uh, yeah. you know, his advice can be taken with a grain of salt. And, uh, and I think it's actually good advice in terms of the stuff that he's saying other people should yeah. do. Yeah, it sounds like he had good advice. He hacked the algorithms or social media algorithms to become very popular. Yeah. I also read that he sold all these supplements or, you know, that were very, because I guess it was the liver king because he would just eat weird shit to get strong, I guess, but it's really steroids. Yeah. It's but, not a steroid, but like, exactly. He's eating steroids. Yeah. That's why he, he's spending like what? $10,000 a month on steroids yeah. and saying um, liver is the reason why he looks like that. But yeah. at the same time, liver is incredible. Like we should all be yeah. eating liver because it's the most, nutrient dense meat out there and yeah. and i started eating liver as a result of that <laughs> and so like you know there is in in my opinion i guess there is a bad version of this which is the things they're saying are very bad and they also hack the algorithm to become very popular i think 
Andrew Tate would probably be a good example of that. I mean, yeah, he's the poster child of that for sure. He's the poster child. I think he became really famous really fast. People are like, where did this guy come from? Anything about him is he will say things that people don't disagree with, like work hard where? Mm-hmm. or the gym. And once you start, you know, I, I feel like that's his hook. And then once you kind of are young and you hear that, then he pulls you into different layers and the deeper you go in those layers, the weirder it gets. And then Yeah. Or the, or I would say for a lot of young dudes, cause I mean, his, his market, it's a lot of teenagers. Yeah. It can be the opposite where he's there. He's pulling people in by saying outrageous things, misogynistic, and then, and they click on it and, and then they see advice that, that they're finding useful and, and that's what gets them to stay. And so I think that is, you know, it's, it's a dangerous one too. It's definitely affecting young men. Um, I think his power comes from his ability. He's one of the few people speaking to young men's shame directly. And, you know, there's a lot of protocol daddies out there. A lot of them have advice on productivity, advice on health. None of them are like, you're an 18 year old and you feel like shit and I have a solution for you. And his, he does that. And so I think it's not advice I stand by. Uh, but I think his his the the target, his directness on who he's speaking yeah. to needs to be copied by other people because he's filling a void that no one else is. What shame do you think he's capitalizing on for young men? So it's, in my opinion, uh, a lot of young men do not feel free. They feel like they are trapped by, you know, whatever economic like lack of a job. They didn't graduate. They're, uh, you know, emotionally, they feel like children because, you know, they're addicted to social media. And so this feeling of like, basically, I want my balls back um, is huge among young men and old men. But I think because of social media and just this like feedback loop of opinion, uh, I think it's especially prevalent among young men. I mean, the, the, the stats are depressing as hell regarding young men and depression and dropping out of school and suicidal ideation. And so um, I think it's just a lot of shame about not being strong enough or the man they want to be or action oriented. And, um, and that becomes a paralyzing emotion that they need someone else to shake them up for. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. I think I also read that you said porn was like a huge factor for shame for huge. a lot of young men too. Yeah. And so like th- this gets into the territory of, of, like there are some things I think, uh, you know, the right is focused on that. Uh, while I disagree with a lot of, uh, you know, political opinions on this front, the focus on porn and that being a major issue uh, is is spot on. And the reason I think that is I do. So I do a lot of men's work. I work with a, a men's group called All Kings uh, based here in New York City. And uh, we, we serve formerly incarcerated men. It's got, you know, 50-50 formerly incarcerated, non-formally incarcerated. And uh, incredible group. We do retreats and weekly circles and, and really get to know each other's deepest shames. And, uh, and so I've been doing this for uh, four years now, very regularly. And I've talked to hundreds of dudes about what is it that is giving you shame and giving me shame? What's your relationship with porn with sexual health. And I can count on one hand the number of men aged 18 to 80 years old who think that their relation with porn is healthy. And so like, you know, whether porn is is causing X, Y, and Z issues, 
the science is not, you know, definitive. But what I do know is that porn is causing shame and people are not happy with their relationship with it. And, you know, it's a, it's a powerful activity. It releases, you know, all these chemicals mm -hmm. in the brain and, and we, you know, a lot of dudes doing it multiple times a week or every day. And it's got to be affecting us on sub on all kinds of subconscious levels. And, um, and if I were to say like, what's the one word that is most common for young men and middle-aged men, uh, that causes shame. If I only got one word, uh, to, to figure out what most people have shame on it's, it's porn. Yeah. Now hearing what you're saying about protocol daddies and the rise of people like Andrew Tate that can capitalize on shame or anger that a lot of young men are feeling, it, it kind of makes sense to make these outlandish, very polarizing, very extreme points of view just to kind of hook them in. So when you hear that in your men's group, what do people do about it or how do they respond? Or is it more about just sitting out in the open and, and just getting it off your chest? Yeah, I mean, so this gets at the heart of like what men's work is and what happens during men's groups, which is we do not give advice. We do not emotionally rescue people by saying like, oh, I'm sorry, or oh, you, you're actually a great person. Uh, don't worry about that. People speak their truth and we let them sit in it. And so if I say, you know, I'm today, you know, I just got a lot of shame. Uh, you know, my relationship with porn is getting out of control. Uh, I, someone might ask me clarifying questions to help me get deeper and deeper into the emotion of that shame, but they're never going to say, here's what you should do about it. Got it. They at best will ask me, what do I want to do about it? And, and to me, that's a very powerful combination because if it's coming from me, if that action is coming, if what I want to do about it is coming from me as opposed to someone else, I'm going to remember it. It's something that, you know, I can't bullshit my way out, out of. And so uh, that's what the, I think men's group, the efficacy of men's group uh, relies on. And I, uh, I think it's a really powerful model for behavior change as a result. I think that's pretty powerful. And I, I'm speaking from my own personal experience is, you, I don't know why I do this, but it's to give advice. You know, it's just kind of, I don't know if it's like in our nature or we are the recipient of people just giving us advice all the time. Yeah. So it's like give advice, but don't share how you're feeling is I, I would say the old like quote unquote protocol. Yeah. I guess there's a new one that's probably healthier, which is share what you're feeling. Don't give advice. <laughs> it's funny. I never thought about it in that like yeah. one, two punch kind of way, but it's, you're, you're totally right. I think it's the new paradigm, the flipping that paradigm is the, the way to go. It reminds me of this, I guess, I wouldn't even say it's funny, but it reminds me of this memory that I have, which is I obviously grew up on the internet like everyone else. I'm a little bit older than everyone, but I grew up on the internet. And I remember I was like clicking through and um, I don't even really love Snoop Dogg, but I love watching any clips that he has. And I think I, it was like right after he had this Netflix show where he was like a coach of a peewee football team. And it was, it was, I thought it was a pretty good show. So I was like really into Snoop Dogg. And I saw this clip where he said, and this was maybe like five or 10 years ago. So it wasn't even a popular theme. And even saying this out loud seems like it's super archaic but he's like dude it's okay to cry like i cry all the time i used to not cry and i would hold it in and i'll get angry and i just realized that it's okay to cry and he was saying this in front of like i think it, it might have been like a barbershop or there you know like a podcast interview 
And that's the first time I actually heard anyone say that. I mean, I've heard people say, oh, it's okay to cry, but I was like, whoa, this guy that I thought was like super tough is saying that it's okay to cry. And then kind of changed the way I thought about it. Yeah, was, I've had a yeah. very similar experience. Yeah, it's, it's, it was is it Snoop Dogg. It was that the, was that the guy you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. So, and then I started crying all the time after that. <laughs> but like, I think this is why it's important to find like role models and tough guys uh, as a dude yeah. and, yeah. Uh, and, and, and seek their vulnerability. Because for me, uh, I watched this documentary called The Work. This is how I got into men's work. Uh, it, it follows guys in Folsom prison. They are, they're doing men's work, you know, every single week, hours at a time, and they become really good. I mean, they are the masters of facilitation for dude therapy, basically. And, uh, and I'm watching this documentary, and it's a bunch of dudes who have, they're in a maximum security prison. They are a thousand times tougher than me. They've seen or committed violent things, and um, they're crying their balls off. They're like, they're just bawling and, and really going deep into whatever traumas have triggered, you know, a, a life of emotions for them. And I'm sitting there thinking like, if these guys are, do, are crying, what's my excuse? Like, am I tougher than these guys? Absolutely not. And if they're telling, if they're, if they're messaging to me over this documentary that like, this is uh, making them feel more human, then, uh, then this is some medicine for me too. And so, yeah, I like find a tough guy who cries and uh, well, I think that's valuable. Yeah, because I think the archetype was be super tough, super aggressive and feel like I couldn't really relate to it. But uh, that got me thinking through what would be the right male archetype or protocol daddy for today, knowing where society is going, how much it's evolved and changed and in good and bad ways. But if we had to like think through, like what would that person look like? Does it exist today? Is it, you know, depends on the, you know, where you are in the spectrum for, you know, whatever the, the different mm -hmm. axes are. Like how, how would you like answer that question? Yeah, I mean, this is, I think one of the spiciest questions today. Yeah. Uh, because I don't have any answers, but I think about yeah. it a lot. And uh, it's, you know, so here's my thoughts. I think ma like the male archetype is, it changes at a snail's pace. Like woman, what I, the idea of what a successful woman looks like has changed generation after generation. Feminism has really done a number on, on yeah. you know, changing the conceptions of what it means to be successful. For men, we've had James Bond for 50 years. And you could like want to be, slutty resort James Bond or assassin James Bond or like suave casino James Bond, but you're still going to want to be James Bond. And even the, the attire of what that looks like hasn't really changed. And so like what today is the role model for men? I, I think it's, you know, the same thing it looked like in 1965. I, I am trying to think these days about like, what does it look like 50 years from now? And is that going to still be James Bond? And maybe, yeah, but I, I think it's interesting. It's fun to think that it could be different. And I'm curious to hear from you, like, what you see. Uh, like, do you have any role models now that you think are, are changing the way you think about your own manhood? 
That's a good question. I mean, I, I do think the role, the role models out there have changed, but I think the, the traits attached to them haven't, right? So like with technology, there's the rise of the nerd. Mm-hmm. You know, there's Mark Zuckerberg who turned down a billion dollars. Look how old he is. There's Steve Jobs who invented iPhone. There's Elon Musk. He's like autistic, but look, he's like the <laughs> richest man in the world. But you know, they're like, you know, assholes or, you know, they had to do cutthroat things or whatever, but those the tech traits assholes are a strong archetype. Yeah. It's a very strong archetype and it's praised. And then you see the protocol daddies and there's different flavors of that. I don't know. I, th- I think maybe a different way to think about this would be what type of person do I want to be? Mm-hmm. Like what type of man do I want to be? What are the values that I want to uphold? And I guess that's maybe a different way to think about it because out of that, maybe there will be a different role model that evolves out of that, especially now because we have the internet. So James Bond era is very, you know, production top down and the internet could be bottom up, but maybe that's a question for you. What type of person or, you know, that what are the traits or values that you try to live day by day? And with a lot of the work that you do, what are the commonalities between everyone that would be deemed successful, you know, a healthy version of what they're trying to become. Yeah, I think, you know, for me, I do split it between the the personal front and the professional front in terms of what I want. And I think on the on the professional front, I it has changed over the last couple of years. Like I I I used to want to run a big tech company. uh, And I was in tech for eight years. And the goal was to raise a bunch of money and, you know, exit a billion plus dollar company. And, um, and that was, I think, the cultural playbook that a lot of folks aspire to. And, you know, in tech, I'm here in New York City. And, and now it's shifting more towards owning my own time, which, I'll, which I also see as a major shift culturally right now. Uh, I would credit Tim Ferriss for really kickstarting a lot of that, um, that thought. And so, uh, so professionally, I want to make money and I want it to provide for the kind of lifestyle I want to live. I think my first million podcast with, with Sam Parr and uh, Sean Purry, like they, they talk about that every single episode all day long. And so I think that that's a, their source of inspiration for that um, in terms of how to do that. But I think personally, I think is, is where the, the edge is for me. And that is a bigger question mark for me. You know, I, I don't know of like a single person that I can say that person shows up how I want to show up in any given situation. And, and for me, I think the, the goal of emotional intelligence, the goal for the kind of man I want to be is I show up how I want to show up in every given moment. I feel as deeply as I want and need to feel whether that's anger or sadness or shame or happiness, et cetera, and use those emotions to, you know, push things forward for me. And so there aren't a lot of dudes who deeply feel on the full spectrum of feeling, uh, publicly at least. And so I don't think there are role models that are super obvious for me, at least on that front. Um, yeah. I do think like religious icons tend to have more of that emotional breath than than your average movie star um you know there's just you know whether you're talking about uh like jesus or buddha or muhammad there's this like a lot of emoting going on 
that I think is really interesting to look back on and, and view as a role model. Yeah. Uh, but today, not so much. Yeah, I think when you're hearing that and thinking through like what would be a good role model or what I would want to achieve as as a human being, I think the the, the, the words like alpha and beta come to mind. Yeah, when we grow up and you you got to be this alpha male, and if you're beta male, you're just beta. You know who wants to be a beta male? And I think that it was like kind of reinforced culturally mm -hmm. I think for me being mixed with being an Asian American male that grew up. And I was born in the eighties and pre all the stuff that's happening now, but with society and popular culture, like Asian men are very de demasculized. Mm -hmm. and so I had those two things going. I feel like I had to overcompensate by working hard and all the things attached to that. I would say today, now that I'm a little bit older, for me, my answer would be balance. So showing that I can achieve what I would want to achieve at work, not go too far into it, have a great relationship with my family and my wife and be a good dad, have strong friends that I could be there for, give back to my community, live in good health, and just try to have a balance between all those things and show that is something that can be sought after or... Out of all those things, I'm curious for yeah. you, where, what are you struggling with the most? What's your, what's your edge? So... I think what I'm working on, which is to, is that, you know, once I heard you say that, or I was like, okay, that is a great framing where you show up and you can be the best version of yourself. You're never going to be perfect, but having both the physical and the mental and the emotional awareness and intelligence to have all those things in sync is a great goal to have. What are your thoughts? You know, the thing, as I read through a lot of your articles and the, the two things that kind of stood out to me was your thoughts on self-respect and living a life of service. And I'm kind of curious to hear, like, how did you land on those two things? What does it mean? I mean, mm -hmm. it really stood out to me as like, man, those are two things I definitely want to do. I, I want to add that to, to my toolkit. I want to make that part of my day-to-day. -day. I want to make sure that I live that as, as to my fullest ability and to all those buckets that I just kind of described. Like, how did you land on that? And mm -hmm. um, what, what does it mean? So... So I've consumed a lot of books and a lot of just content on like how to be a man. And th there's one book that I think is, is the template for a lot of modern takes on how to be a dude coming out from influencers. And that is David Data's book, The Way of the Superior Man. Yeah. And, uh, and that book is just a laundry list of rules, a couple dozen about like, how to show up in a relationship, how to stand up for oneself. It's very like, you know, be comfortable with confrontation, be comfortable with being uncomfortable and, uh, and, you know, step into it. He, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot in that book, but I would say self-respect is absolutely core to, um, to his conception of like the superior man. And so, uh, that message, I think, is 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 taken and reformatted in a thousand different ways by a lot of online influencers right now. Andrew Tate among them. Like stand up for yourself. Jordan Peterson, sit like sit up straight. Um, take care of yourself, clean your bed, and uh and and have that be the first step to becoming the man you want to be. There's the, there's one thing it lacks though, which is like, what's the point of it all? Like, what am I here for? I don't 
really care at the end of the day to be a superior man. I don't want to be better than everyone else because that you know a million dudes trying to be better than everyone else sounds like misery and 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 then we can get into like you know the whole concept of of the patriarchy basically a lot of dudes being mad at each other for being dudes it has created a world of pain and that shtick has not worked out the last couple thousand yeah. years at least yeah. and and so is there a healthier goal in mind besides being superior uh, that that enables us to live in relationship with each other and that fills us with energy and love. And and to me, that's living a life of service. And, you know, it, every religious leader that I'm aware of, including, you know, other icons like Einstein, uh, Mahatma Gandhi, et cetera, they all stress service. And, and service is, ironically, the thing that I see lacking in the current discourse around how to be a man. And so uh, they're not like self-respect and, and, and living a life of service are not necessarily masculine things. Yeah. Uh, but I do think the way we interpret it are like, there's, there's way self-respect looks different for a guy than it does a woman. Uh, service can look a lot different for a guy than it does a woman. And, and I think we have to think about what that looks like for ourselves in order to feel complete and uh and not just be involved in a rat race what would that look like in or how does that look like to you today when you kind of do a lot of your work or yeah i mean i for one i think creating a, a life mission while sounding corny as hell is is really important for under like for each person understanding themselves uh again in in men's work uh we do that we everyone creates a life mission and write it down for me it's it's you know in my bedroom written on the wall i can see it every day and uh and for me for example uh i want to give people a sense of control over their lives that's my mission and i do that through active listening and doing the damn thing which that mission doesn't sound inspiring to any, to most people uh, but I know exactly what that means for myself. Mm -hmm. I know exactly what kinds of actions I need to take to to fulfill that. And and that, I think, is the key to having a good mission. It is like It means a lot to me. It doesn't mean a lot to other people. It's not flashy. It's not whatever. It's just very clear. And so, uh, so yeah, I I do men's work. That's, that's how I serve people besides myself. Um, but it's a mutual give and take. Uh, because you can't serve other people without serving yourself in a healthy way too. Uh, I encourage everyone to, yeah, just find like whatever deep insecurity they have and like whatever mom and dad stuff you're carrying, turn that into a life mission. And, uh, and the idea behind that is you're best able to give what you want for yourself the most. So, you know, if, if I want, control over my own life because I, for whatever reason, didn't feel I had that growing up. Um, that's the gift I have for everyone else. For the rest of my life, I can give that better than just about anything else because I know exactly what that feels like. And and running an exercise like that for oneself, I think, is really powerful. Yeah, it's very powerful. Um, one quote that you wrote about that I really liked, which is, 
Before men's work, if you asked me to envision what a super masculine dude devoted to emotional safety and healing looked like, my brain would short circuit. I was like, oh, yeah. Um, and it sounds like you're doing a lot of that work. And I was kind of curious, like, what does that work look like outside of, you know, the retreats and the weekly circles? Like, mm -hmm. what are the toolkits? What are the, like, how does one create emotional safety? How does one communicate well? How does one express their emotions? What does that healing look like? And I, and I don't want to ask it just for men because I think a lot of the things prior to applicable to everyone, mm -hmm. what is in that toolkit? Yeah. So, so I think, you know, there's the goal for me at least is to, uh, be in control of my own energy and share that and, um, and be an effective leader, like in a, in a room, mm -hmm. understand what the energy is and enact accordingly, change it if it needs to be changed. So the first step for that is a lot of emotional self-awareness on my front. I have to understand where I'm at, where I'm coming from. And, uh, and there's a lot of tools to do that. I think one that comes to mind is every single meeting that we have in men's work, we check in with how we're feeling. And it's not a story. It's not I, this happened, then this happened, then this happened. It's just I get five emotions to choose from. Happy, mad, sad, fear, shame. And I choose one of them. I maybe add a sentence about why I'm feeling that way. So like, uh, you know, I'm feeling fear because this is my first podcast and I don't want to screw it up. And, and that's it. And so I start getting really clear about how am I actually doing? And, and like, what are the patterns of where those emotions are coming from? And, uh, and you know, beyond that, there's that more kind of, 30,000 foot level uh, toolbox item of what are my insecurities? Like we all have mom and dad issues. We all picked up insecurities yeah. when we were growing up. Yeah. What are they? What? And so this is a, 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 a exercise that Tony Robbins popularized, but um, he calls it the primary question. And, and I love this framing because it's basically, what is the question I ask myself the most often? There can only be one that I ask myself the most often. And chances are it's based on some insecurity I picked up, you know, when I was eight years old. And it's low-key stressing me out all day. And for me, at least, it's uh, how do I make you happy? But for everyone, it's a little different. I've heard people say, you know, am I right? Uh, am I safe? Uh, do you like me? There's a lot of these types of questions that if I'm interacting with somebody, that's happening in the back of my head, whether I like it or not. I have no control, you know, instinctually about whether that question gets asked. I'm just thinking it. And if, if I can understand that question, now I understand that that's probably the limiting belief that is getting me, that is getting in the way of how I actually want to act in a situation. If I am focused on how to make you happy, Michael, and you're because you're pissed off at me and my brain, it can only think about like, OK, how do I make Michael happy and not how do I actually solve this issue or just take care of the problem? Then uh, then I'm not actually solving the problem. I'm just, you know, dealing with some surface level issue here. And and so as soon as I understand that, I can start to rewrite what that question I should be asking is. And, and over time, I be, as I become sensitive to it, 
I, I can react and gain control of that, that insecurity or that emotion. Eventually, I think, you know, this goes back to creating a life mission. If I know that's my insecurity, I know I'm really sensitive and I'm really good at percepting if people are not happy. Maybe that's the source of a, of a gift I, I have for the rest of the world. And I think this goes back to like these tech guys uh, being assholes. They all had daddy issues. Someone, you know, like it's, there's a lot of abuse, just straight up physical abuse and mental abuse for the most successful people in the world. There's something about wanting to be great and wanting to be worthy. And this is how they're going to prove it. And that's the gift they're giving everyone else. You know, sometimes it comes out sideways and, you know, they become violent themselves. Um, but understanding that can be a huge asset. I'm curious for you. Uh, yeah, when it comes to like naming emotions, uh, what, yeah, do you find that that's a difficult thing or do you find that certain emotions are difficult for you? No, I think, oh, yes. And it's something I've been working on and being, being able to kind of do what you just said and label, like label it and just describe why and not going to this full blown out explanation and just letting it sit, like feeling it and not having, not reacting to it and understanding that's a pattern uh, for sure. I think when I think about my question or my insecurity, um, you know, I never really thought about it. I would say the first thing that comes to mind would be, am I being heard? Mm. It, which is kind of interesting because I'm starting this podcast. Yeah. You know? Well, there you go. Is yeah, it connected? I, Probably. Am I being listened to? Am I sounding, you know, like I would say to you, like I feel like fear because I don't want to sound dumb. Here's how you know if, if, that, yeah. if, if that is the primary question. So uh, if it's, you know, am I being heard for you? If you can connect it to some memories growing up where you really did not feel that you were being heard. And if you feel that um, if you don't ask that question, if you're not heard, bad things happen. Like there has to be some pretty severe consequences to, mm -hmm. uh, to that question not going right. Then you know you've got a primary question on your hands. Yeah, I have to think through that. But it does sound like it checks off a lot of the boxes. It's pretty interesting that I've focused a lot of my time and energy today on creating a podcast and a platform to share an opinion that I have with the world. So that's why it was like the first question that popped up. I do have a lot of memories of not feeling like I was heard or not even be able to speak. So it makes sense now that I would do the, the polar opposite, which is you know, sitting in this room in front of a microphone mm -hmm. to, mm -hmm. to speak or chat with other people that share their opinions and perspectives. So it, it, I think it does check off a lot of boxes. I'll have to think through like the negative consequence or constant consequence of not speaking up or feeling heard. Um, I'll have to think that a little bit more, but I'm pretty sure when I go to therapy, I will yeah. uncover some examples. There's some, there's some juice there. You got something yeah. to work with. No, yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on therapy? Because I know physical health, it's like there's so many protocols mm -hmm. for mental health. I know a lot of people online or that I've read talk about therapy not being that effective. I found it to be effective in some ways for myself, but I wish there were other things I could do on that journey. Um, like, What are your thoughts on therapy, healing, 
And if that, that's even the right world or different things that a person could do to improve, you know, yeah. outside of their life. So I think, you know, the, the mental health toolbox that we've got in, in terms of like, what are the popular items that I can grasp onto if I'm not feeling good or I just want to improve my mental well-being, emotional intelligence, intelligence et cetera. Therapy is incredibly powerful. Uh, it's it's one-on-one -on -one from a trained person how to you know get rid of some pretty nasty patterns, which is great. Yeah. Um, yeah. That being said, I think it, it's just the way our entire health system is set up. It's focused on here's a problem and I'm going to get you to base level. I'm going to, you know, diagnose you with depression or anxiety. And what we're going to work on is solving your depression and anxiety. And other things that people, other toolbox items for mental health, which such as, you know, pills or even meditation, um, now psychedelics, I think have a similar, at least how they're marketed. It's similar. It's, you know, meditate for your depression and anxiety, uh, take a pill for this or that. And, and what I see a gap in as we're all trying to evolve and, and, you know, be closer as, as, as humans to each other is, is what are the actual skills that I can build? What are the toolbox items I can work on to get strong, not just okay. Uh, and that's a question mark. Like, where do I turn to if I want to be really good at, uh, emotional self-awareness at connecting with other people, et cetera. And it's, I, I do think of emotional intelligence or, or mental health as, as more akin to a gym than, and, and like going there and training and putting my reps in on that front as a way to get better, as opposed to, you know, fixing something that's broken and, and now I can go about my business. That's so interesting because, you know, I would see people that are charismatic or, you know, have those skills and the assumption would be, oh, they're just born like that. You know, that just comes natural to them. But I guess like all things in life, it's a skill that you can learn, you know, like starting a company is a skill, managing, leading is a skill that you could develop. Obviously, some people have a higher aptitude or might pick it up faster, but it's definitely a skill. I never thought about that on the... I guess through the lens of the emotional intelligence side. I mean, I guess I have been working on that, you know, throughout my career and and, and today. But yeah, there's a I, there's a general lack of, I would say, targeted education on this front. Yeah, I wish there was like a life school. Like my dream would be mm -hmm. in a world where good high school it is what it is. Most people they want to go to college, they could go there. Maybe there's a gap year or summer program where you go. It's like here are all the life skills, like practical things. This is how to manage your finances and pay your taxes. This is, you know, how to find the right partner. This is how to like develop uh, a great physical health habit. And and here's some mental health and emotional intelligence things you can learn. Yeah. So you can like emerge out of that school as like a well-rounded individual. Well, I think what's exciting right now is that like those protocols are are not in, like they're they're new. We're figuring that out. Yeah. I think right now. Um. I've done a lot of research on where to find exercises, protocols, things yeah. that I can help improve my ability to just like simply feel or uh, 
you know, be in a tough conversation. And, and what I find is that there's a lot of workshops that, uh, that, that do speak to this stuff, but there's a lot of bullshit. There's 70% like bullshit workshops that won't teach you a thing. 30% fantastic. Um, or, you know, I, I, uh, in a single workshop, I might throw away 80% of what I, what I hear, but find, you know, one or two things that I like. And a lot of it's tied to spirituality. And so yeah. as someone who is this like not a new age inclined person, uh, there's, that's a big turnoff. Like I, I, I don't want to sit in front of someone talk about how I can show up better in front of, uh, you know, their, whatever conception of God they have, but they might have some really useful tips and, <laughs> and I absolutely have used them. And so, um, it's, I don't think we have cleanly separated out these really useful emotionally emotional intelligence protocols from uh, what works and what doesn't and, and from the spirituality stuff as well. But I think that's happening right now in real time. Yeah. So it sounds like they're these protocol daddies that will talk about how to make money, like how to live. Health and productivity. And that's Productivity and make money. Yeah. yeah. Or health. And now I guess health. Health, wealth. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I guess if there's a third bucket around emotional intelligence or mental health or however, whatever, however you want to describe the bucket, what would be like a protocol that you would, you know, like what would be a good example yeah. of, of one? So my favorite, my favorite just baseline protocol that is for me foundational to all the others is called active listening. And it's basically just how to listen to somebody and, uh, and be there for them and sit in whatever they are feeling. And so active listening is doing one of three things. One, shutting up, being silent, just listening. Two is echoing the exact words that they say. Not paraphrasing, just echoing their words, which means paying attention to those. And then three is asking clarifying questions. And so if, if someone is telling me about, you know, how tough of a day they've had, I am doing one of those three things. I'm not giving advice. I'm not saying it's not going to be that bad. You're a great person, whatever. I'm just saying, I'm, I'm staying in silence. I'm echoing or I'm asking clarifying questions. And every time I have done that, I have a conversation that goes way deeper and is way more emotionally impactful and intimate than anything else I could have done. Yeah, and I think that's also something I've been working on myself. And I think it, like what I've noticed is getting to a place where you really understand what the person's saying. So I think I would repeat what they were saying because it was literally like this formulaic playbook. Mm-hmm. But I would think the secret was when I really truly understand what they're saying and they felt they feel like I really understand what they're saying. And yeah, doing it without judgment because you know sometimes I'm human. I would disagree with what you're saying and the defensive version of that would be counter arguing them, dismissing it, et cetera, and trying to prove your point. But then when you listen deeply and the other person feels like you really understand them, I found that like it, it leads to better, deeper conversation, but it also can reduce like a lot of conflict. Like a lot of conflicts are just loops mm-hmm. where one person's saying another thing, another person's ping-ponging back and forth. And I think active listening can you know 
prevent a lot of things from even even starting. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think yeah. I, I think, think a lot of conflict is probably just one or both sides feeling like they're not they're being misunderstood. So it could be a work thing. It's like, hey, I have this idea, but if you know your coworkers not listening to you, it's like, okay, this person's not. You know, do they think it's a bad idea? Do they not think I'm smart? Or you know, maybe those questions are popping up in your head. Oh yeah, all the I mean, the judgments yeah. start flying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, it's really it's really hard to do though on a, on like every single day. Every I screw it up all the time. I mean, yeah. well, a buddy of mine literally this week, I uh, was going through a breakup, and uh, and he's telling me about it, and I immediately start going into like, you know, you're great, you know don't worry about it like we're gonna we're gonna get back out there and and i caught myself i was like this is not helping anybody no and and he's sitting there like i'm just sad like i'm (laughs) i just want to be sad and 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 that's exactly i think the challenge is when someone is feeling some type of way i want them to feel normal but i think the healthiest thing for a lot of folks is to go deeper in the emotion to, yeah. to if I'm if I'm you know sad and I'm here like how do I just ratchet that up so I can fully experience it and then that enables me to uh, to get past it or at least uh, yeah. feel like I'm on the other side of whatever I was feeling. Yeah, this reminds me of the rules that you guys have in the men's group. You know, I will make I statements versus you and I will not give advice to another man unless he explicitly asks for it. Oh, that first one, I like saying, telling stories, just saying I or talking I instead of you. So difficult. I mean, that really requires some brain rewiring. Yeah. All right. It's this one, which is I will not emotionally rescue another man. For me, if I'm feeling down, the last thing I want to hear is like, hey, we're going to go back out there and we're going to try again. I was like, dude, let me, you know, I just want to like yeah. wallow for an hour and let me feel like shit. Out. Yeah. Yeah. Let me feel like shit. I don't need to be picked up right now. No. It's really hard to do those things, but I do think that goes back to showing up every day and trying your best. Mm-hmm. And, and eventually it's, it's a liberating feeling of like, I don't need to do anything. I just, yeah. you know, being in silent echoing, Asking questions is not difficult. It's not brain science when it comes to really, you know, being there for someone. Um, it's just our own, you know, emotions getting in the way. Yeah. So circling back on the question we, we've been talking about is like, what is the right archetype? Mm-hmm. And I think I would add it, you know, it's, coming a l- it's becoming a little bit clearer for me. I would add a third one, which is something that you've spoken about before, which I think it, for me is the answer is like a man feeling emotionally secure Mm -hmm. and you know maybe having the physical side having you know like let's say health and wealth are important i would say the third one is being very emotionally secure it feels like the combination of those three things would be a very well-rounded individual or at least you know in, in whatever definition you have i think having those skills um i think is pretty important yeah i mean maybe we just found out the new man of uh yeah. 2023 uh yeah health wealth yeah. and uh emotionally secure yeah so if I, I could see there's like a new version of like interview Huberman coming out it's like i'm a scientist i've done so much research into emotional intelligence not just for men but just for everyone and it's like dude the playbook is there of how to become very famous doing these things mm-hmm. i mean probably like a positive and a i guess a negative way of doing it but you know, it's so- funny you mentioned Huberman. I think this is exactly what he's 
doing right now. And the last yeah. two months have been nothing but emotional intelligence podcasts. But but here's the catch is, I mean, there are there are broadly about the science of emotions and and some of them are more practical than others. But there's very few protocols about what to actually do about it. It's yeah. it's like mental frameworks, but without the action items. And so I, st I think this is still the frontier of mental yeah. health and, and in new archetypes for men is figuring that stuff out. Yeah. And I think it feels like there's something bubbling there because there's the rise of psychedelics. There's a rise of people looking for alternatives to therapy. I think a lot of people are talking about it. A lot of people are thinking about it. Mm -hmm. It's becoming a lot more accepted where this, the Marble Man or James Bond is like, it's like, it was the archetype, but it's just so unrelatable today. So hopefully there will be more archetypes that evolve and hopefully we'll see some more it's positive associations with all these other things that have been frowned down upon, yeah. upon from just like society around how to be a man. And I think like coming back to James Bond, like he, the fantasy of James Bond is very clear. Like that vision of his lifestyle of being extremely capable, living a life of luxury. I can, we can all picture it in our head. What is the fantasy of being emotionally secure, of being able to feel all the feelings and showing up how we want to show up? That is not clear. I think that's the work for creating a new archetype is helping someone like me understand what that looks like so then I can step into it. Yeah. Yeah, I think... It sounds, you know, it sounds like there are some tactical things that need to happen around how to do these things. And I'm sure that a lot of those things do exist. Like, you know, there have been books written about active listening, but I do think those books are fairly new, like past decades, not, you know, hundreds of years. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there needs to be new role models, you know? Um, I mean, like if I had, to, if I was like a, like a talent agency, I was like, dude, I think this is going to be a trend. We need to find the most buff, like. You know, like we need somebody like The Rock that is very in tune with their emotions. Like that is like we can make that person really famous. Like they're going to talk about their physical health. They're going to check off all the boxes. They're going to be extremely wealthy. People are going to, you know, because that's that's like what is accepted. And then we're going to add this third thing that's going to make this person really differentiated. And yeah, gonna just talk about all the emotional intelligence. They're going to talk about how to parent well. They're going to talk about how to have a great marriage. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk about how to create your own men's group or friends group where you can go deeper and you don't just talk about sports. Yeah. You know, maybe that, you know, like I could see that kind of popping up. And because I think a lot of people and men especially want, right? Mm -hmm. I think there's a craving for it. And I think it's going to hopefully happen soon. And I think that the toughest part, the, the challenge for that is not just talking about the emotions. Like the last 10 years, there are plenty of celebrities who say, I have depression and, yeah. you know, and they're open about it and it's great and it's a huge step forward. But I think the, the tough part is showing people what that looks like and showing people what coming out the other side of that emotion looks like, because that's the, the frontier of vulnerability. You know, the yeah. rock can say, I was sad yesterday, but what does that look like for him? And so that when I look like that, I know that there's a path 
that you know is yeah. is is a step beyond it. Right. I, I do feel like it's bubbling up just for society in general, and I think it's just a matter of time before it becomes like a new protocol that I think. Yeah. 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 Well, here's to the journey, man. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> um, you and me both. Maybe, yeah. I guess to wrap up, like who are the the top ones that you would recommend that have a healthy dynamic or protocol daddies? Or protocol daddies? I yeah. mean, Huberman's my man. I yeah. I I can't not uh listen to him just because I think he's his selection of who he has on his podcast. Yeah. Um is is he gets the top people and I know it's never going to be bullshit, which is yeah. a tough, you know, hurdle to to come across in the podcast realm. Yeah. So for all things health uh, and in like productivity, uh, I think he, he's a top bet. Peter Atia for Straight Up Fitness is my top guy. Uh, and yeah, for per per for like how to make money on the wealth front, I think my first million podcast is uh, is is doing incredible work. I think they're yeah. redefining masculinity in a professional context for a lot of young guys and it's super exciting because yeah. it's it's making money and how it is it and not that sucking not that sucking your soul out and they make it look fun so yeah. um so that's it it's nothing special i'm still if yeah. you have any wrecks i'm uh, i'm all ears and i'm constantly on the hunt for more no i think those are all good ones um don't listen to too many podcasts, but I do listen to those. But uh, where can people find you online? And where can people like read a lot of the, the work that you're publishing? Yeah, thanks. I'm on, uh, I've got a newsletter called A Man's Work. Uh, it's on Substack. And, uh, and so you can search for that with my name or, uh, or A Man's Work, as well as an online Zoom course about emotional intelligence. And so all these protocols that, that we're talking about uh, it's a space for getting the reps in, for learning how it's done, and then doing it, and and building those skills that are foundational to showing up how we want to show up. And so that's at amanswork.com. Cool. Thanks, Shining. This was a great conversation. I really appreciate you jumping on. Michael, thank you so much. This has been a blast. Yeah.